19, and it's on page 556 in the Bibles. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm. All of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Please do uh, keep your Bibles open in front of you and let's pray. May these words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Yahweh, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Is there a God? And if so, what is he like? Does he care about us? Can we trust him? These are some of the most basic, most fundamental questions that we can ever ask as human beings. Questions that people have grappled with for millennia. Questions that have uh, driven religion and philosophy and education and art and literature all over the world. It's good to ask big questions about, like this, about God, about us, about what a life well lived looks like. The trouble is, we can't know God the same way we know other things that we want to find out about. As Christian author Evelyn Underhill has put it so superbly, if God was small enough to be understood, he wouldn't be big enough to be worshipped. There is an, uh, what theologians call an infinite qualitative difference between us and God. And what that simply means is big fancy theological talk for God is infinite and eternal, and you and me 
are not. So how can creatures accurately conceive of their creator? How can limited, time-bound people like you and me grasp a God who created the universe and who has no beginning and no end? The gap between who God is and who we are is just so great that it's impossible for us on our own to answer the question, who is God? God isn't just humanity writ large. He isn't just uh, you and me magnified by a factor of a million. The key word that the Bible uses again and again to describe God is holy, which means set apart, distinct, different. God is unique. God is in a class of his own, a class of one. There is no one like him. And what all that means is that we can't study God the same way that we might study an insect or a rock. Our own thoughts, our own observations, our tools and conclusions simply will not get us there. There's a name for a God who's accessible to us through our own intellectual efforts. It's called an idol. Rather, we know who God is. Because God graciously and actively reveals himself to us. One of the historic prayers of the Church of England says it beautifully. It says, God has made himself known to us in creation, in the calling of Israel to be his people, in his word spoken through the prophets, and above all, in the word made flesh, Jesus, his son. If we want to know God, then we've got to listen to what God says about himself in the ways that he says it, but supremely in Jesus. And so that's what we're going to be doing over these uh, weeks of Advent. We're going to be looking at the way that God reveals himself to us in creation, through the history of the people of Israel, uh, through the prophets and the scriptures, and through Jesus. But let's just circle back round to Psalm 19. The heavens Declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. C.S. Lewis said of Psalm 19, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. I think he was a fan. Psalm 19 is a, is a hymn of praise. Uh, like Psalm 8, which is rooted in wonder of the natural world. But the theme of the psalm as a whole is God's revelation. First, God's revelation in creation, which is verses 1 to 6. Then, uh, in God's life-giving instructions, which is verse 7 to 13, before finishing with the psalmist's humble prayer at the end that he's spoken well of God. Verse 14. And the prayer at the end is actually particularly significant because David uses the language of sacrifice to describe his theological reflection. Human talk about God, that's what theology literally means. It means theos, God, logos, talk, God talk. That's theology. Human talk about God is only pleasing to God when it agrees with what God has said about himself. So all proper Christian theology is based on revelation, on what God has made known to us. It's right for us, there, uh, right there for us in the name that God gave 
to Moses at the burning bush, I am who I am. We don't get to decide who God is. We may want God to be a certain way, that doesn't make him that way. We may feel that he can't be the way that the Bible says he is, but our thoughts and our feelings don't make God who he is. God is who God is. Everybody's view of God, therefore, is not equally as good as anyone else's. If God is God, then our opinions don't come into it. Our calling as God's creatures is to know him as he is, not as we want him to be. And the fact that God reveals himself means that there is an objective standard by which all of our talk about God must be judged, namely what he said about himself. Imagine if you were a geologist. Wouldn't it be so much easier if the rocks could speak to you and say, I'm an igneous rock? God does speak to us. And he tells us who he is. And so the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts are pleasing to God when they correspond to what God has said about himself. And so let's just flip that for a moment to consider what that means. The words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts are not pleasing to God when they do not correspond to what God has said about himself. So if God says, I'm loving, and we say, he's hateful, that's not pleasing to God. God isn't pleased with a kind of theology. It's all about just working out our own thoughts and emotions and feelings about the kind of God that we want. Either I determine who God is and what God is like, in which case I'm not a Christian, or I let God determine who God is and what God's like, and I conform to him rather than expecting him to conform to me. And therefore, that means that the, the, the rather popular progressive Jesus who just loves on everyone, who never confronts sin, who has a heaven for everyone and a hell for no one, frankly, that Jesus is just as much as an idol as Horus, the falcon-headed god of the Egyptians. How we speak about God matters. And that's why David prays, verse 14. If we get our vision of God wrong, we get our lives wrong. As A.W. Tozer says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as the worshipper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest, i.e. the most important question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous, uh, the most kind of significant fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. And so he goes on to conclude, we tend by a secret law of the soul to, walk, to move towards our mental image of God. So the point of this psalm is to get us to look up at God. And if we're only seeing the sky, we're not looking high enough. The structure of the psalm itself is, is meant to take us on a journey 
of divine revelation. And we see this even in the, in the titles that David uses for God throughout the psalm. So, so just notice, in verses 1 to 6, when David's speaking about uh, creation, he only uses the generic Hebrew word for God, El. Then in verses 7 to 13, where he's speaking of the, the scriptures, he uses the divine name that he gave to Moses, Yahweh, the, the one that's Lord in all capital letters in our English Bibles. But David finishes by calling Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. It comes home when it gets personal. And so the the truth that this psalm teaches us, I think, is this. God speaks to everyone through creation, but creation alone is not enough for us to know God personally, which is the goal of his revelation. Now, we speak for one of three reasons. We speak to inform people, to persuade people, or to entertain people. But behind all of them is an idea of relationship, of interaction. Uh, I'm sure we've all had the feeling here of speaking to someone and feeling like they're not listening to you. Why is that ringing eerily true? Um, no. uh, <laughs> at least someone has got the joke. Anyway, um, I, I'm sure there's plenty of parents in the room who are also thinking, it's the story of my life speaking and not being listened to. But this is a really, really simple point. We speak in order that another might hear. And so when we talk about God speaking through creation or uh, through the calling of Israel to be his people or through the prophets or through his son Jesus, I want you to remember that all of these are ways that God speaks to us. He's not talking to a brick wall, although I'm sure to him it probably often feels like it, he's talking to you. He's talking to me. Are we listening? So as we look through uh, Psalm 19 and see what it shows us about the way that God speaks to us through creation, we're going to see four things. First, we're going to see that that creation speaks. Second, we're going to see how creation speaks. Third, we're going to see what creation speaks. And fourth, we're going to see the limits of creation speech. So first of all, that creation speaks. Look with me again at verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. So those two verbs that are used here, they're both speaking words. Uh, David goes on and makes it even, even more cl- clear in verse 2. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. So what David's saying is that creation has God's fingerprints all over it. In the same way that a book has a, a, an author and a painting has an artist, so creation has a creator. Everything that is, is because of God. Uh, In the words of Chris Tomlin's uh, song, indescribable, from the highest of heights to the depths of the sea, creation's revealing your majesty. 
The created world communicates to us something about who God is and what God is like. And we, we know this from our everyday lives, don't we? Have you ever eaten a meal in a restaurant that cooked itself? Have you ever listened to a concerto that didn't have a composer? Have you ever gazed up at a building that didn't have an architect? No, there's nothing in our world that came into being all by itself. Everything that exists has a cause. The world exists, therefore someone or something caused it to exist. So every tiny flower of the field and every blue whale in the ocean says to us, hey, someone made me. I've got a creator. And the fact is, uh, the fact that the universe is says something profound. And likewise, you, you and me, our very existence The fact that we live and breathe says something. God speaks to us through creation. But second, how does God speak to us through creation? The psalmist is absolutely clear that creation speaks, but creation doesn't speak to us uh, in the same way that I'm speaking to you right now. Has a tree ever come up to you and said, hello, having a good day, are you? Have you ever heard of... Maybe uh, maybe some of you have... Look with me at verses 3 and 4. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. So there's a paradox here, isn't there? Creation speaks without speech. And that seems a really odd thing to say, doesn't it? But think about it. Experts estimate that between 70 and 93% of all communication is non-verbal, i.e. it doesn't use uh, words. And I was mindful, just as I was saying that, that I was going like this with my hands. I didn't mean to do that, that just happened. So uh, a couple of years ago, uh, um, the teenage daughter of some good friends of ours said that she wanted some clothes for Christmas that were edgy but relatable. Now... (laughs) I haven't got a clue what that means, but clearly she thought that her clothes said something. And we know this, our clothes do say something about us, don't they? Don't they? As we said a few moments ago, creation speaks by its very existence. And creation speech is non-stop. You can't turn it off. Though we can turn ourselves off from listening to it, that is possible. But the silent music of creation is like a radio station that broadcasts all day and all night. But unlike any radio station that we've ever known, there is no end to its range. There's never a place where it will cut out and get, you'll get static. David says that its voice goes out into all the earth and to the ends of the world. There's nowhere on this planet that you cannot get away from creation's chatter. Nowhere, wherever you go, from the pit of the Mariana Trench to the top of Mount Everest, 
you will see evidence of God in creation. And so that means that the knowledge of God isn't context-specific. It's not just for people who live in a particularly beautiful part of the world like Hawaii. Believe it or not, we even here in, with Yorkshire's dark satanic mills see evidence of God's creation all around us. It's universal. It's open to everyone. But notice as well that creation speaks joyfully. We see that in verses 5 and 6. Look at the two metaphors that David uses to describe the sun's movement across the sky. He says, It is like a bridegroom coming out of, its cham- out of his chamber. Now, in the ancient Israelite culture of, of the day, the bridegroom would go and collect his bride from her father's house. So what's David saying? He's saying that the sun is moving across the sky with purpose. He's going to get his bride. There's a joyfulness in that, or at least I hope there's a joyfulness in that. But the second metaphor is that, uh, that of a champion running to his course. So, have you ever seen the film Chariots of Fire about Eric Little? Where Eric Little says, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. Creation is like that. It doesn't mumble. It speaks clearly and joyfully. Because what it has to say is the happiest thing in the world. Which takes us on to the third thing, what creation speaks. So again, go back with me uh, to the beginning of the psalm, verse 1. The heavens declare, what do they declare? The glory of God. And the skies proclaim what? The work of his hands. So in other words, creation says two things. First it says, God is great. And second it says, God made me. And there's an artistic intricacy about this verse. I'm going to nerd out on you for a moment, so forgive me. But there's a common uh, structure in Hebrew writing, especially poetry, that uses something called a chiasm, and it's basically a mirror pattern. Um, And it's meant to highlight the thing that's in the middle of that, that kind of mirror. And the best way to show you is to, to illustrate it. So here we go. This is... This is how it looks in Hebrew, not in, not in the English translation, because in English uh, we have subject, verb, object, but you don't need to do that in Hebrew. But this is the pattern. The heavens declare the glory of God, and then this is where the, it doesn't work in English, but it does work in Hebrew, and the work of his hands name, the, proclaimed, namely the sky. So the skies proclaim the work of his hands, but we can't say that in English. But what's the thing in the middle that it's trying to highlight? The glory of God and the work of his hands. That's what it wants. That's what uh, creation is speaking. That's what it's telling us. Uh, So I wasn't just to nerd out on some Hebrew poetry, though I admit I love it. Um, It's because the focus of the psalm isn't on creation for creation's sake. It isn't just about saying, isn't that a wonderful butterfly? It is a wonderful butterfly, but it's meant to lead us back to the God who made that wonderful butterfly. You know, it's, it's like a sunbeam. It's meant to, you're meant to follow it back up to the sun. 
And so the point of verses 1 to 6 isn't that creation is pretty cool, though it is pretty cool. The point of creation is that it points to the creator. We're not meant to just enjoy the sunbeam, we're meant to follow it back to the sun. If all we do uh, is look out at the night sky and say, wow, it's beautiful, we've missed the point. We're not listening to all that creation's saying. We're like the stereotypical husband who's only half listening to his wife whilst trying to watch the World Cup at the same time. I'm sure that never happens to anyone here. Creation tells us that there is a glorious creator if we have ears to hear. There's so much beauty, so much intricacy in this world. Do you really think it's a cosmic accident? I mean, just put it another way. Some of you perhaps have, have seen it in person, but I imagine most of you have seen at least a picture of the Mona Lisa, right? Do you think anyone said, I bet Leonardo da Vinci didn't mean to paint the Mona Lisa? I'm sure he just threw a few, <laughs> few paints on it. Come off it. And yet we say that about the natural world all the time. So not only does creation say that the creator is, but creation says that the creator is glorious. What is the glory of God? The glory of God is the going public of his holiness. The going public that he is one of a kind, unique. It's the demonstration of his presence and activity in the world. The Milky Way galaxy, okay, just to, to, just to help put this in perspective for us. The Milky Way galaxy, i.e. our home, is 105,700 light years wide. So that's a one followed by 18 zeros kilometers. That's just one galaxy, our home galaxy. What do you think that says about God. What do you think that says about what he's like? He's glorious! Isn't he amazing? But, number four, creation speaks silently about its glorious creator, but its speech in itself isn't enough on its own. Why? Uh, That's why verses 1 to 6 about God's world are followed in verses 7 to 13 about God's word. That's why David uses the generic word for God, El, in the first half of the psalm and the proper revealed name of God, Yahweh, in the second half. Ralph Ralph Jacobson writes this. He says, perhaps the point is that one can know a God vaguely, impersonally through nature, but to know God personally, then the direct revelation of the word is required. In creation, the creator comes to us hidden, wearing nature as a mask, In the word, the Lord, Yahweh, comes to us personally. So creation alone may be enough to make us deists. It may be enough to to make us people who believe that there is a, a God out there somewhere. But it's not enough to make us Christians. 
it's not enough to make us people who know the God who exists in and through Jesus. So God's goal is that we know him by name, Yahweh, as my rock and my redeemer. Creation alone doesn't get us there. Uh, John Piper describes nature as the prep school of our affections, readying them to delight in God. I love that idea. It's a prep school. Creation lays the groundwork for a deeper, more intimate knowledge of God. Nonverbal communication is just far too easily understood. Using uh, grand sweeping... So, uh, did you know, in, in, I'm sure many of you probably at least know uh, by, by, by stereotype, if not by having been there, but in Italy, you get lots of grand sweeping actions that people use with their arms as they're speaking. In Japan... That's actually very, very rude to do that. So the same thing means different things. It can be misunderstood. And that's why we need something more than just creation. Nature can tell us about God's reality and God's glory, but it can't tell us who we are and what a life well-lived looks like. It can't tell us about God's saving grace. It can't tell us about the victory of Jesus and his death and resurrection. And so God's book of creation needs to be read alongside God's book of Scripture. Looking at creation is a bit like watching someone from a distance or Facebook stalking them. Reading the Bible is like reading a letter that someone has written to you. Creation tells us about who God is and what he's like in broad brushstrokes. The Bible, God's instruction to us, is much more specific, much more detailed. If rocks spoke, it would make the work of a geologist much easier, but they can't. So if we want to find out about it, we have to do experiments. But our God isn't like a geologist's rock. The God of the Christians is a God who speaks. God can tell us about himself. God does tell us about himself. It's right there. Right there. And it's right there in Jesus, who is the word made flesh, to whom this points. Now, I'm not going to in, go into detail uh, at verses 7 to 13 because the focus of today's message is about how God makes himself known to us in creation. But let me just say a word about the Bible's preciousness. At her coronation in 1953, Queen Elizabeth II was given a Bible with these words. We present you with this book, the most valuable thing this world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. So just picture it, please, with me for a moment. Some of you will have seen it on TV at the time. The queen, seated amid the Gothic architecture of Westminster Abbey, dressed in all her royal finery, about to hold a scepter in which just one diamond is worth some 400 million pounds, and she's handed a book and told that a book that you'll find in any charity shop in the country, and told, "This is the most valuable thing this world affords." Do you believe that? This 
It's the most valuable thing this world affords. So having set out that God speaks to everyone through creation, but that creation alone is insufficient for us to know God personally, which is, which is the goal of God's revelation, let me now just try and apply it to us in a few ways here and now. What difference does it make to you and to me that God has made himself known to us in creation? First, it means, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1, that God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. In other words, all people everywhere know something about God. They can't claim ignorance as a defense. There's enough evidence for God in the world for us not to live a godless life. And if there's anything that should spark us into evangelism, it's thinking of the countless millions every day who are going into a lost eternity without God. And the second application, I think, is because creation speaks of God's glory and God's handiwork, let's enjoy it. Let's listen to it. The poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote this, Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes The rest sit round it and pluck blackberries. So, how's this for some homework? Go outside, get into nature this week. I know it's cold, I know it might be raining, but go for a walk in the rain. Sit outside and stare up at the stars at night if if it's not too cloudy. Go bird watching. Allow creation to minister to you. The great 18th century American preacher, Jonathan Edwards, had a fascination with spiders. Absolutely fascinated by them. But as his biographer, George Marsden, writes, the greatest philosophers of the day agreed that the more one explored the ingenuities of nature, the more one must admire the genius of the creator. Only an all-wise governor of the universe could account for such marvels. Get out into nature this week. You know, I, I, one, one of the things I love doing is going, going for a walk, and uh, people often see me out going for a walk, and it's a great time for me to, to pray, to reflect, just to have a bit of quiet and stillness. Uh, and I remember going, going for a walk uh, during the summer, and I was on a walk, kind of on a loop through, uh, through Horbury, but... I was coming, coming up, I don't know what it, I can't remember the name of the, na- name of the road, but it doesn't really matter, but I was walking along. I just saw, peeking up from, from, from the side of the pavement, tiny little orange flower on the way. And I must have looked like a right wally, because I was just kind of crouched down looking at it. I was like, that is beautiful. Thank you, God. That orange flower that most people are just probably ignored. That is absolutely beautiful. I haven't got a clue what it's called, so if anyone knows the name of a very small, very delicate, intricate little orange flower, please tell me. Third, take the most valuable thing that the world affords off your bookshelf and reflect on what it means for you to be made 
in God's image. Creation glorifies God by being what God made it to be. So the the sun glorifies God by shining in the sky. Bunnies glorify God by hopping through the field. Worms glorify God by wiggling in the earth. How do you and I glorify God? The answer is right here. Genesis 1. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. How do you and I glorify God? By reflecting what he's like. How's that going for you? Elizabeth Elliot writes, a clam glorifies God better than we do because the clam is being everything it was created to be, whereas we are not. So take some time this week to reflect on your own vocation as a human, to mirror God into the world. Confess your failings, but then look ahead to Jesus who fulfills that calling perfectly. And fourth where I'm coming into land. This is the fourth and final thing, but it's probably the most important. Don't settle for a vague, hazy, impersonal knowledge of God. Let's not be deists. Let's be Christians. Let's be people who know God as God has made himself known to us in his true and living word, Jesus Christ. God made you for a conversational relationship with him. That's the picture that the Bible paints of Adam and Eve right there in, in Genesis 1 and 2. God is speaking to you. He wants you to know him by name. He wants you to know him personally. He wants you to be able to say like David does, my rock My Redeemer. Can you say that for yourself? Can you say that from the heart, personally? I don't mean can you just say the words. Anyone can say the words. Can you say them from your heart and mean them? Do you know him? Or do you just know about him? So friends, please... Please, 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 please don't exchange the glory of God for his gifts and creation. His gifts and creation are meant to lead you to him. He is the all-satisfying treasure, not his stuff. So if you're here today and you don't yet know God personally in that way, ask him to open your eyes to see him. Open, ask him to open your ears to hear him. Ask him to open your heart to love him. And if you've been coming to church for 50 years and you feel embarrassed because that might sound a bit like you, don't be embarrassed. It's never too late to know God. God's inviting us on a date 
So stop Facebook stalling him and get yourself down to the restaurant. Don't let God just be an idea. Don't let God just be an abstraction. Don't let him just be a nice, distant, grandfatherly figure. Let him be your rock. Let him be your redeemer. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. Thank you that you're a God who wants to be known and a God who longs to draw us into relationship with you. And we thank you that you don't make us guess who you are, but that you speak to us directly. Father God, there may be people here this morning who have never seen your glory in creation or in the scriptures or in the face of your son dying for sinners and rising again in glory. For others here this morning, the glimpse of your glory may seem like a a distant memory. And so I pray, Father, that you would open the eyes of every heart that we would see your glory and know you personally. Lord, don't be just an idea to us. Be to us our rock and our redeemer through your son, Jesus Christ. Only your Holy Spirit can do this work in our human hearts, so please send your spirit upon us now. We want to know you. Complete that work of revelation in us by making yourself a living, bright reality to our hearts. Amen.